Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. We've got so much to cram in in this podcast. We've got the government's build, build, build announcement, the Johnson as Roosevelt, he's moved on from Churchill to, who am I today? Oh, yes, uh, Roosevelt. Who am I today? Uh, Mourinho. Oh, no, that's, that's football. Spurt there. I know, I'm Roosevelt. So we've got to look at all of that. The attempt to initiate a Whitehall revolution in the midst of a pandemic, which is clearly still raging. Look at Leicester, and that won't be the last. And uh, look at Keir Starmer and the complex art of leadership when in opposition as we explore the sacking of Rebecca Long Bailey and what that means. But before all that, if you don't mind, I'm just going to plug the next live virtual rock and roll politics from King's Place on the King's Place website. It's Monday, July the 6th. This coming Monday, there'll be a live show and you can get tickets now on the King's Place website. God knows where we'll be by then. A heck of a lot going on at breakneck speed in politics. Anyway, Boris Johnson has made his speech about build, 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 citing Roosevelt and all the rest of it. And it is so interesting because on one level, my instinct is to be pleased that you have in its fourth term a Conservative government that recognises that investment is not always a waste. The kind of assumption that drove policy in the 80s and 90s, that public spending is basically a waste of money, and certainly framed the first term of this government. By the way, Keir Starmer should always refer to this government as, the, as being in its fourth term. It feels new, but it's in its fourth term. And in its first term, its economic arguments were precisely the opposite of those being advanced now. And these arguments being advanced now are more intelligent than the Cameron Osborne cut, cut, cut in real terms, just as the economy needed a stimulus and only the government could provide that stimulus. That was um, turbocharged Thatcherism. But because they believed in gay marriage, the BBC and others argued that they were modernisers and centrists, and only the Eurosceptics in their party were on the right. It was utterly lazy labelling and imprecise and wrong. And now we have a Tory Prime Minister putting the case for investment as a way of getting the economy going and overtly rejecting the ideas behind austerity, which drove the first term and the second term of this Tory government. We've heard this before, of course. Theresa May declared the end of austerity to try and get a positive headline amidst her trauma over Brexit at a Tory party conference and not much happened and this is the problem and this in the end is why this number 10 stroke cabinet office this triple alliance of Johnson Cummings and Gove are so in the end reckless and danger there is a chasm between what they say and what happens and in that overblown speech in Dudley, there were huge claims of a Roosevelt New Deal. 
Roosevelt spent billions. He knew from the beginning that scale was an issue, that merely announcing bold ambition was not the same as realising bold ambition. Boris Johnson and Michael Gove are both columnists. Michael Gove was a very good columnist uh, in that he was interesting and unpredictable and witty and elegant. But column writing, you write it and it appears as a column. In politics, government is far more complex and the mere affirmation of a new deal does not mean the delivery of a new deal. And the sums Boris Johnson re-announced, they're not new sums, five billion here or there, is tiny, tiny. You know, I can sort of see him going around opening, or not opening because it won't be built, but going to one of his new seats in the so-called Northern Wall. Here's 50p, build a, build a new station. You want a school renovated, 25p, we'll sort that out. The sums are small compared with the scale of ambition. And even the means as to how you raise those sums are vague. We're in the midst of what he, Johnson, acknowledges is a massive economic crisis of uncertain consequence because none of us have any idea when this pandemic is going to be resolved, if it is going to be resolved, whether there's going to be a second peak and so on. And yet hearing the ambition to rebuild Britain is at odds with that context and as I say the means of finding the money to invest I assume in the end they will borrow which is fine but you need to do it on a scale and you need to put that case too and I suspect the treasury will twitch nervously at such a prospect the treasury is always the department of sound money are we making ends meet? Do the sums add up? It's really worth following Nick McPherson, the former permanent secretary at the Treasury, on Twitter. He's a great Twitterer, and um, he always hashtags sound money at the end of his very acerbic observations and insightful observations. I disagree with him on the sound money front. He's not one of life's great Keynesians, but he's worth reading. You get a sense of what the mood in the Treasury is. So anyway, there you have one example. You have so many. Think of all the declarations over the period of this pandemic. Uh, World-beating test trace system up by early June. Nowhere to be seen. And so it is, too, with the Michael Gove speech on Whitehall reform, which he made over the weekend. It had all the characteristics of a Gove speech or column. There was much self deprecation, a degree of humility and admission of his own past errors as a cabinet minister. It had references to figures who are not normally cited by those on the right. Gramsci gets a look in. The term progressive is constantly a recurring motif. And some of the arguments he makes about reforming the civil service are powerful. And indeed, Cummings too if you look on YouTube, if you have a spare hour in this crazy period, there's a speech that Cummings 
delivers to the IPPR when he was in his wilderness era, having been sacked by Cameron as a special advisor to Michael Gove and before he became the most powerful advisor ever in British politics. He gives the speech to the IPPR, which is on YouTube. And some of his arguments about the civil service is true. It's inefficiency, it's tendency to promote not on the basis of merit or the qualification for the newly elevated role, but because someone's been around for a long time and here's another job. All these things are true. And indeed, I remember discovering to my bewilderment that um, under Labour, quite often, for example, a project from the Home Office they would bring in outside very expensive private consultants, basically duplicating the task of the Home Office officials or civil servants because they didn't trust the civil servants to get it done in time or to do it properly or effectively. So there was a kind of triplicating and quadrupling of resources from expensive outsiders to get the work done. All that clearly needs to be shaken up, and Gove mentions it's important to have people with the right qualifications in the right jobs. And as he made that case, and incidentally a case that is not new or fresh or particularly original, uh, but I think Cummings believes his thoughts are kind of unique and revolutionary, uh, the government showed what it really thought, sacking Mark Sedwell, who has experience, at least in his role as the sort of chief security advisor, and appointing David Frost, Cummings' favourite official's the wrong word, really, because he is party pre, his favourite advisor. He used to be a civil servant, Frost, but he's now the Brexit negotiator, answerable to Cummings, largely, sometimes speaks to Johnson, but mainly Cummings. And he is a relatively sort of reticent personality. He's not, uh, he's not a loud, aggressive personality. But his tweets have become jingoistic and provocative, very Cummings-like. And so either having come under Cummings' spell, he's become like Cummings, or Cummings has imposed himself on him in some kind of weird Shakespearean farce. But anyway, Frost has been chosen because of Brexit and their fantasy of a post-Brexit global Britain striding the waves, being this new dynamic economy, everyone else in awe of it. It's a fantasy. But Frost has come to share this fantasy, so he gets a top job for which he is not qualified. Once again, this gap between elegantly argued assertions and the reality on the ground is vast. It's so dangerous as well because I think sometimes sometimes they know of the gap and it's a deliberate attempt to put up a facade to disguise what's really happening on the ground. But I think a lot of the time they believe it. As others have pointed out on Brexit, Michael Gove in his speech says, you know, you've got to look at the data, you've got to analyse evidence and draw conclusions on that basis, not on past sort of Whitehall practice or whatever. Absolutely right. Nothing they are doing on Brexit is evidence-based at all. 
all the evidence suggests crashing out with no deal at the end of December is going to give this economy another massive hit. But it looks as if, in their jingoistic impatience, they are happy to move towards that kind of uh, situation. And indeed, some, I'm told, in uh, number 10, actively want a no deal. Well, that's not evidence or data-based. But I think they have convinced themselves that what they are doing is wholly in line with these statements, that I think Johnson now considers himself genuinely to be Roosevelt-like. And I think Michael Gove, in making that argument, believes that the reforms they are undertaking in Whitehall will be the instruments to deliver this country to the promised land without fully recognising it's the policies that accompany the civil service and the nature of the ministers delivering those policies that are also key. It's Someone should, maybe I'll do it one of these days, do a study of the Gove-Cummings partnership at the Department of Education, where there was a lot of noise from Cummings and a lot of elegant polite humility from Michael Gove but both were there with radical intent but the radicalism I always thought was confused so for example they were very keen on setting up more self-governing schools because certainly one of Cummings loathings uh, local authorities like the European Union he loathes he loathes Westminster he loathes the cabinet he loathes the Tory parliamentary party and so on so they wanted to set up self-governing schools and, and free so-called free schools were one of their objectives. But at the same time as hailing free schools, which incidentally is at odds with their broader belief in the importance of accountability, which is one of their arguments against the European Union, that it's not accountable to the British voters, free schools, the lines of accountability were very mixed and vague and imprecise. But more than that, the ultimate contradiction was that they thought they knew best, Cummings and Gove, what should be taught every minute of every day. And so they put down these very strict curriculums that had to be followed, changed the nature of exams and testing and all the rest of it, and yet declared these schools to be free. There were all kinds of contradictions. And in the end, although Cummings, with some justification, ranted against the first of all, the numbers of civil servants that kind of I always say about the BBC, it's never knowingly understaffed. That's certainly the case with Whitehall. But the policies and the ideas behind those policies in that era were contradictory and their approach was so provocative and aggressive they didn't really get the cooperation of anyone to do it effectively. And here they are now in charge of everything from Brexit to economic policy making, because Cummings at the moment is much more powerful, say, than Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. The Chancellor might become a formidably powerful figure in this government, but it's early days for him. And he is, of course, the creature of Cummings, who told Johnson to sack Javid because Javid wouldn't sack his special advisers, and to put Sunak in instead, who would have more malleable special advisers. Cummings, incidentally, is much the most powerful special advisor to have been appointed in the history of British politics. I, I tweeted something along those lines the other day and suggested that he perhaps should stand for election if he wants so much power. 
He claims to be interested in accountability. He isn't. And yet he wields so much power over Johnson, who is complacently in awe of him and not recognising the deep, deep flaws of someone who is a campaigner but not a policymaker and with contradictory ideas that fuel him along with a loathing of institutions. And some people tweeted back, what about Alistair Campbell? Alistair Campbell was hugely influential in number 10 under Tony Blair, but if you read his diaries in quite a limited way, Alistair Campbell wasn't that interested in policy making. He didn't have grand ideas about the economy or how you run a government or a desire to sack anyone who crosses his idea of how politics should be run. He was obsessed, of course, because it was his job, with getting good media coverage. And Blair, being obsessed with the media, became hugely dependent on Alistair Campbell. Of that, there is no doubt. But in terms of policymaking, he didn't have a huge input, didn't seek a huge input. And his diaries don't actually cover much of the detailed policy negotiation that went on between Gordon Brown, Tony Blair and their respective advisers. It was very, very different. Cummings wants to dominate everything and thinks he has a clear idea of this future of the United Kingdom out of what he sees as this sclerotic European Union, free, dominated by pioneering science and technology and all the rest of it. It's all in his rambling blogs. And it's dangerous to have a figure with, I, I kind of call him a shallow revolutionary. He's uh, fueled like many revolutionaries are by hatred of these institutions, as I've just discussed, but without a clear, coherent, practical vision of the future. And yet I think it's him and Michael Gove dominating everything with Boris Johnson, the erratic frontman. Now, Fakir Starmer and the Labour leadership, there is in this development a very big opportunity. There is no doubt at all, just objectively, how you measure these things, that the economic argument in the United Kingdom has moved leftwards. You know, in the Cameron Osborne era, which was, I say, the first term of this government not very long ago, everything was focused on how you reduce the size of the state, cut public spending, in real terms. And if anyone dared to challenge that, they were leapt on, not only by Cameron and Osborne, but by the media. So the whole Miliband Bulls era of Labour leadership, it was all about, okay, so what are you going to cut? And well, hold on, are you saying you're only going to cut the uh, the deficit by half? And Miliband was like, oh, well, it's quite, you know, half is a massive achievement. And, and of course, it would have been if they had been in power, because that's what the Osborne era ended up more or less doing. It was a very, very right wing consensus, as it normally is in England, or certainly has been since 1979. Now, this has changed. It changed in the budget before we all knew quite how severe the pandemic would be, although there were plenty of signs which the government, this number 10, who think they are all seeing, chose not to see. But before that period, Sunak, I don't think he necessarily believed it himself, it was a budget which was created largely within number 10. 
put the Keynesian case. He said the borrowing and spending that I have announced today will lead to improved economic conditions and higher productivity. He was putting a Keynesian case compared with George Osborne, who used to say things like, you know, they maxed out the credit card and now we must get our finances back into a safe position. I'm therefore going to announce blah, blah, blah. Cuts, cuts, cuts. Especially, incidentally, to local authorities who are now being seen in another sort of confused, multi-layered complexity situation of being the instruments of local lockdowns, enforcing it, deciding precisely what form they take and so on. Well, they were cut to the bone long ago under the grounds of austerity. Well, now the argument is around Keynesianism. And the reason why this is an opportunity for Starmer is something Nigel Lawson said many years ago. It was a very smart perception. He made it in 1991, no longer Chancellor, of course. He resigned under Thatcher. John Major was in power. But the Tories were miles behind in the opinion polls, moving towards that 92 election. It's easy to forget how often Labour were well ahead in the polls in that period of time, Neil Kinnock the leader. And Lawson made a speech in the Commons about economic policy. And he said that he was wholly confident that the Conservatives would win the next election because the party that's winning the battle of ideas wins elections. And although there are no laws in politics, that's a really good guide. And he was right, of course. The argument then was absolutely rooted on the right. Neil Kinnock and his shadow chancellor, John Smith, were nervously preparing what they called the alternative budget which did propose a degree of overt redistribution. They were putting a social democratic case in 1992 and they lost. And the Tories won for the fourth time because although John Major was not a particularly potent advocate, they all looked knackered and were knackered and had just introduced a poll tax, which they then abolished. They still won because the battle of ideas were absolutely rooted on the right and in some ways they continued to uh, be so which is why Gordon Brown got the reputation of being what was known as a stealthy chancellor he stealthily did some social democratic things but didn't overtly publicize it because the battle of ideas was still rooted on the right with the media in England and all the rest of it well Johnson has moved it and he's done so as I say with huge questions about the means of delivery, but that too could help uh, Keir Starmer. So they've got advantages. They've got disadvantages in that shift as well, because if the Tory government were to deliver, it leaves them with less ammunition and distinctiveness at the next election, and it will leave the Red Wall more contented with their choice of voting Tory because of Brexit. But if they don't deliver and the argument remains rooted in this area, it's an opportunity. But a leader of the opposition only gets space to make the use of such opportunities if he or she, he always with Labour, is perceived as being competent, authoritative, authentic. 
And that brings me briefly to the sacking of Rebecca Long Bailey as uh, their shadow education spokeswoman. Now, at first, I had some concerns about this for several reasons. Being leader of the opposition, especially a Labour leader with a a largely Tory-supporting media, is very challenging. You cannot be judged by policy implementation. All you have are words and deeds. And what happened after the sacking worried me. A lot of the commentariat on Twitter hailed the move as strong leadership. And that unreliable narrator, George Osborne, also tweeted, this show, Keir Starmer wants to win the next election, all this kind of thing. Now, you would think, oh, yeah, that, that's an argument for saying what a good move, being hailed by the commentariat for, uh, for being strong, because all leaders ache to be perceived as strong. But here's my concern with that as a justification for what happened. The commentariat and the media are very fickle. They can change quickly. Let me give you an example from that Kinnock era and what did happen in 1992. Every now and again, often sincerely, but sometimes just to be seen to be strong, Neil Kinnock felt the need to take on his party. And when he did, he was hailed for his strength. Newspapers like The Times, when Kinnock, I don't know, took on a left-wing shadow cabinet member or famously, of course, with Militant. Oh, yeah, you know, Neil Kinnock showing himself to be a strong leader, blah, blah, blah. Then when it comes to it, the divisions that arise as a result of those displays of strength mean that those commentators or newspapers that hailed the strength then condemn the leader for presiding over a divided party and conclude that that leader is unelectable. So that isn't a reason for doing what Keir Starmer did. And if I thought it was for that, to be seen to be strong, something that Labour leaders have done, often Ed Miliband tried it, as say Neil Kinnock did, and they in the end moved towards their doom as they were doing it, fleetingly being praised, It would have been a mistake, but I don't think actually Keir Starmer did do it for that reason. I think he did it for a reason that justifies what he did. And that is this, that in opposition, especially for Labour, the bar is set very, very high. There needs to be, at all times, certainly on the front bench, total message discipline And there needs to be a consistency in the approach of a leader. And if indiscipline breaks out in any form, the whole house of cards collapses. It's why when Gordon Brown became shadow chancellor after that fourth defeat in 1992, he made himself very unpopular with the shadow cabinet by telling them they couldn't make any spending pledges. And they didn't, and he got so unpopular he couldn't have a hope of winning the leadership contest when it suddenly happened in 1994. But he did his party a massive service by imposing that kind of discipline. And Starmer has said that removing the whole anti-Semitism issue from his party is an overwhelming objective. 
There was the retweeting from Rebecca Long-Bailey of an article which contained within it indiscriminate stuff about Israel. And given, and only for this reason, given that the bar is set so high for Labour leaders, he was right to make that move. There has to be total discipline. And I hope he would have done it if it was from another wing of his party in the shadow cabinet who had retweeted something which um, could be seen as being anti-Semitic or whatever. He wouldn't have been praised as much if he had sacked somebody more popular with the commentariat. Um, But I hope he would have done it because that is a reason. If you are clear in your own mind as a leader about your strategy, your principles, your convictions. You don't have to do things to appear to be strong, to get a quick thumbs up from a media that will then turn on you anyway in the days to come. And I hope that's the reason he did it. If he did, it's justified. And, you know, some of the stuff afterwards, the analysis about this is him being Blairite and all the rest of it, that's being seen through an outdated prism. And if he did it for those reasons, it was wrong. But I don't think he did. So that's this is why you need a podcast to explain a position, because mine's a bit nuanced and just, oh, fantastic, this is Blair Mark too, blah, blah, blah. It needs to be something different in the era that we are navigating, not least with that economic Keynesian consensus that was not available to Blair and Brown in 1997. So we await next week that uh, economic statement from Rishi Sunak, which is meant to sort of fill in some of the big, big gaps um, in Boris Johnson's Keynesian phase. That will be next week. No doubt will be covered in the podcast. And also, just to mention again, that live virtual show on Monday, July the 6th via the King's Place website. Tickets available now at the King's Place website. I really hope you can join me then. We'll have plenty of time to go through all kinds of things. We will be able to make our inaccurate predictions, have lots of questions. It will be just like being together live at a theatre. And thanks for listening to the podcast, which will, of course, be back again next week too. Have a good time. And as they used to say... Keep safe.